We come now, brethren, to the preaching of the gospel, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the 10th chapter. The book of Romans and the 10th chapter. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 14 through 21 of Romans chapter 10. Verses 14 through 21 as we consider and conclude our examination of this 10th chapter this morning. I invite you to read along with me silently as I read aloud. Beginning in verse 14 of Romans chapter 10. Here Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time together this morning, and we ask now for the work of the Spirit of God that he would open our eyes to the beauties of your word this morning and grant us understanding by his grace that our lives would be transformed, that our thinking would be renewed, that our desire would be to serve Jesus Christ and his gospel with all of our being. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. As we considered last Sunday, the message that there is a righteousness from God that is by faith has not been hidden, nor has it been entirely a secret. For even under the law, there was an awareness that men could not meet the righteous standards that God had demanded. Even under the law, there was a recognition that another way of righteousness was required if men were to be justified. And therefore, what was desperately needed and what God graciously supplied was another message. Another message other than the law. A message that upheld the righteous standard of God that was revealed in the law, but a message that also announced the good news that God's righteous standard had been upheld and fulfilled by one who was perfectly righteous himself, by one who had the ability to offer up his own righteousness to others, to those who came to him on the basis of faith. And this new message, which we also call the gospel of Jesus Christ, came upon the heels of the Mosaic law, and it replaced the law's emphasis upon works righteousness with a message of grace and forgiveness 
through Jesus Christ. And of course, the manner by which the gospel of Jesus Christ was given demonstrated how different the law and the gospel are and why the gospel is superior to the law. For the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai in a way that highlighted the sinfulness of the people and the great distance between them and God. In fact, as Moses received the law from God, the people remained in the camp below the mountain, trembling. And as Moses came down, the people stood afar off, crying out to Moses, saying, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. That's what they said at the giving of the law. For in the giving of God's law, which was accompanied by flashes of lightning and by the sound of thunder and by smoke rising up from the mountain, there was a reason to fear. There was an awareness of God's presence. There was an awareness of sin, of God's wrath against sin, which the law produced but could not relieve. However, as we saw last week, the message of the gospel comes to sinful men. It comes to you and I differently. For rather than speaking to us from a distance, rather than causing us to tremble with an overwhelming sense of dread and fear, the gospel is brought near to us by divine grace. And it's not difficult for us to hear the voice of the word as it is presently speaking. In fact, Paul wrote back in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8 that the message of the gospel, the message that there is a righteousness that comes by faith is saying something to us. And it's saying this, it's saying the word is near to you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart when you confess and believe in Jesus as Lord and as the one God raised from the dead. For there is no need for you to labor in some attempt to justify yourself. There's no need for you to strive to make yourself righteous because you can't do that anyway. There is no need for Christ to accomplish more since he's already descended into the abyss and ascended into heaven for us, securing our justification before God the Father. Therefore, there is nothing left to do but to hear the word that is so near. It's so near. And how is it near? Well, Paul tells us here in our sermon text this morning, how it is near by stressing to us the means that God uses to communicate the gospel to us. And Paul does so by emphasizing that God uses the preached word as delivered by men sent from God to be the instruments by which he calls us to saving faith. This is important for us to understand because while the gospel message is nearer than the message of the law, while it is far nearer than we first realized that it was, it is not something that we instinctively know. It is not something that we come to an understanding of on our own. 
but rather the message of the gospel is something that the Spirit of God reveals to us. The message of the gospel is something that must be declared. There must be men chosen and equipped by God to declare it so that the Spirit can produce faith in those who hear it. And of course, this is what Paul is drawing our attention to here in verses 14 and 15 with a series of gospel-related questions. Questions about God's appointed means for declaring the gospel and bringing the lost to faith in Jesus Christ. And no doubt by asking these questions, there are four questions Paul is challenging each of us to carefully think through our understanding of how the gospel is, is to be delivered and what our own role and response to it should be. Because there is a need not only for men to preach the gospel, but there's also a need for others to support such men and to lift them up in persistent prayer. And so let's consider, let's answer each of these questions here in verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 10. And Paul's first question is this, how then shall they, those who are lost, how then shall they call on him, on Christ, in whom they have not believed? And no doubt Paul poses this question to emphasize the fact that before the lost can call upon Christ, before any lost man or woman or child can cry out to Christ in prayer for the gift of salvation, they must first believe in the gospel. For unless a person is believing in his heart that Christ is who he says he is, and that Christ can do what he says that he does, there will not be spiritual life, and there will not be the spiritual impulse that is required to call savingly on the Lord. For believing, Paul declares, precedes the desire to be saved. Believing precedes, goes before the desire to be saved. And of course, this is essential for us to understand because we are often told that prayer precedes belief, that prayer goes before belief, and that we must first pray in order to believe. And yet the popular teaching about this order is wrong. It's wrong. For you and I cannot call upon the Lord savingly unless the Lord first grants us the ability to believe in Him, which then allows us to call upon the Lord believingly. And so what we need to understand even before we declare and preach the gospel to lost men is that they cannot call upon the Lord savingly unless God grants them the grace of believing or the grace of saving faith first. And then once God grants them this faith, their new inclinations, their new inclinations as new creatures with a new nature is to call upon his name. Then secondly, here in the middle of verse 14 of Romans 10, Paul asks a second question. That question is, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And of course, this question from Paul emphasizes the critical relationship that exists between having the right belief and having the right knowledge. Having the right belief and the right knowledge. For if a person does not possess access to the right knowledge, then how can they rightly believe, or in this case, how can they believe savingly? And the right knowledge that must be possessed before one can believe rightly is the knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. He must be the object of our knowledge if we are to believe savingly. And if we don't have this knowledge, or in this case, we've never heard of Christ, then a right belief in him, which is the evidence of salvation, is not possible. Why is a right knowledge of Christ, meaning that we have heard of Christ, so critical to a right belief in him? Well, it's critical because Christ is the only one in whom salvation, as the Bible describes it, can be found. In fact, the Apostle Peter declared in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this being the case, it's inconceivable from a purely biblical standpoint that a person could be saved having never heard of Christ. And of course, this point that salvation is found in Christ alone necessitates that we explain with great care and with great clarity who Jesus Christ is whenever we are proclaiming the gospel to the lost. For providing lost men with anything less than a clear and comprehensive picture of who Jesus is only results in misinformation. It only results in falsehood, which leads to grave error and confusion. Thus, the gospel that we preach must portray Jesus Christ with the same clarity and beauty as Scripture does, so that men can believe rightly. Then thirdly, here at the end of verse 14 of Romans chapter 10, Paul asks a third question. Notice the question. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And no doubt Paul's purpose in asking this question and in this particular order is to point to the fact that God uses means. And in particular, God uses human means to declare the gospel in its clarity and in its relevance to lost men and women today. For while the power of the gospel does not depend upon human instruments, God has decreed that the human voice, hear me, God has decreed that the human voice as expressed primarily through preaching be the means he uses to place the gospel in our ears and to ultimately place the gospel in our hearts that we might be saved. For preaching in and of itself may seem like an ineffective and unattractive way to declare something so precious as the gospel, and yet what may seem foolish to natural man 
and to the worldly man who claims to be so wise can actually be the source of limitless power when owned and applied by the Spirit. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 20 through 24, Paul speaks of how the gospel is superior to the wisdom of this world and how the gospel silences those who think they are wise. In fact, if you think you're wise this morning, hear these words carefully. For God will show you are foolish. God will silence you. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is he? Where is he? He's not here. Who is the scribe? Where is he? Where is the debater of this age or the one who thinks he can stand and argue against the truth? Where is he? He's, he's nowhere to be found. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom and please God through the folly of what we preach, through preaching, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, it is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. And so to communicate the gospel in a way that God intended for it to be heard, it must be preached. In fact, our own confession of faith, chapter 20 and paragraph 3, which we read as a part of our confession this morning, states, The revelation of the gospel unto sinners is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. In other words, we hear it because God is pleased to deliver it. And therefore, in all ages, the preaching of the gospel has been granted. Notice that word, granted. It's been given to us. It's a gift. Granted unto persons and nations according to the counsel of the will of God. And therefore, the answer to Paul's third question is this. Yes, sinners need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. And unless the gospel is preached, they cannot hear it. That's why we need preaching. We need to hear preaching. We need preachers. For in order for the gospel of Christ to be heard, it must be faithfully proclaimed. That's God's wise plan. And someone, someone must proclaim it. Of course, this leads us to Paul's fourth and final question here in verse 15. And that is, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Because the idea here is that before someone can preach the gospel, they must be set apart for the task. They must be officially and formally commissioned as one who is authorized to declare the gospel. For no one can act as an ambassador of the king without having been called and sent out by the king. So Paul's focus here behind this fourth question is upon those who are called of God and sent forth 
under the authority of the Holy Spirit to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And no doubt, Paul's also emphasizing the point that without men who are spiritually sensitive to God's calling through the Spirit and who are willing to be sent out for this purpose, the gospel will not be heard. For while this is primarily a matter between God and those who are called to the gospel ministry, this matter of God's calling of men should be of interest to the church of God. This should be of interest to us as his people. For the church is the place where spiritually minded and gifted men are identified and nurtured for the gospel ministry. The church is the place for that. And if there are not men being raised up in our churches who are sensitive to God's call and willing to give themselves for the cause of the gospel, then who will preach the gospel of Christ? Who will preach the gospel in the future? Who will preach the gospel, the good news to our children? Who will preach the good news to our grandchildren? So there is a real seriousness and even a genuine sense of urgency associated with this fourth and final question from Paul here in the first part of verse 15. For if no one is being sent, what does this say about the state of the church? If no one is willing to go, what does it say about the men who are in these churches? No doubt one thing we can do is promote this need and to encourage men, even within our own church, to consider devoting themselves to the gospel ministry. One way to do that is to have a positive view, a, a high view of the importance of, of the gospel ministry and how precious gospel ministers are. And let me again emphasize that point. We need to talk about how important the ministry is and how precious gospel ministers truly are. For if we're always talking negatively about the ministry, if we're always finding fault with our ministers, how can we possibly expect men to surrender themselves to such service? But if we have an appreciation for those who faithfully preach the gospel and we speak well and we speak positively of the effects of the message that they preach, then we may encourage some men to consider this most blessed work. Because faithful gospel ministers are a gift to the church. They're a gift to the church and they should be received, they should be appreciated as messengers of joy and as messengers of good tiding. In fact, it should be highlighted here that Paul follows up this fourth and final question by quoting from Isaiah 52 and verse 7, which we also read this morning in our reading from the law regarding the value of such men and the sacrifices that they make. In fact, as I said, we, we read this this morning, but Paul repeats it here in verse 15 of Romans 10. He says, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And brethren, their feet are beautiful, not because they're more attractive feet, 
than the feet of other men. But they're beautiful because these men are, are holy men. These men are devoted to God. These men are tireless in their service. And thus, as Matthew Henry wrote, those who welcome the word cannot but love the messengers of the word. Those who go to great lengths and efforts to bring the gospel. So through these four questions that Paul asks here in verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 10, we're reminded of our dependency upon God and granting us the ability to believe, the relationship between right belief and right knowledge, access to the knowledge of Christ, the pressing need that exists for men who can preach the gospel, and the value we should place upon those who give themselves to God and to the church for the work of the gospel ministry. And all of this is important because the work of the gospel has been entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ. The work of the gospel has been entrusted to this church. And we are to do all that we can to prepare men for this work and to uphold and further the influence of the gospel within our midst. And yet, while the glorious gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, and we should possess total and complete confidence in its power, the reality is that God in his wisdom has decreed that all men will not obey it. All men will not obey it. Although the preaching of the gospel is the ordinary means by which God calls men to saving faith in Christ, some will not believe. And that's not the fault of the gospel, by the way. And it's not necessarily the fault of gospel preachers, but it's the decree of God. Paul writes here in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 10, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah states, and this quote is from Isaiah 53 in verse 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? For it seemed to Isaiah that so few believed the word. So faith comes from hearing, Paul says, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so just because some men, maybe even the majority of men, do not obey the gospel does not mean it is not to suggest that the gospel, and especially the preaching of the gospel, is ineffective or an insufficient means of calling men to faith but rather men's refusal to obey the gospel says more about man's depravity. That's where the problem is, our depravity. It says more about man's depravity than it does about the power of the message that we preach. We measure effectiveness. We measure the adequacy of the gospel, not by men's response to it, but by what God declares his word to be. And that is the word that goes forth, conquering men for Christ. For Paul next stresses here in verse 18 that the gospel has been heard. The gospel has gone forth. And its voice has gone out to an extent that no one could have possibly imagined or anticipated. 
Even in Paul's day, it had gone out to an extent that nobody could have ever dreamed because the gospel is that powerful. It is that powerful. It is that message that God chooses to bless the salvation of people everywhere. For Paul asks here, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the world and their words to the ends of the earth. And therefore, no one who is honest in their assessment of the gospel's success through the world can deny the fact that the word of God has gone out. It has gone out and has gone out powerfully and that the church through the power of the gospel has been a worldwide influence. Oh, that it was a greater influence. Oh, that there were more preachers and more gospel preaching. And yet, what about Israel? Paul keeps coming back to them again and again. What a burden he had for his people. What about Israel? Well, Paul concludes this 10th chapter here in verses 19 through 21 by citing what the Word of God declared about Israel's response to the gospel through the words of Moses and Isaiah, who in a sense here represent all of the law and the prophets. For Moses had spoken of how God would use the gospel as it went out clearly to the Gentiles, not as a weapon to conquer Israel, but as a means of provoking her to jealousy and anger. Paul writes here in verse 19, notice these words, But I asked, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. And no doubt the greatest obstacle for Israel was her jealousy. Her anger in seeing the hand of God turn from her towards others. By the way, God in his providence can do that. He can turn away his hand from one nation and place it upon another nation. Upon turn from one people and place his blessing upon another people. And that's what happened to Israel, to provoke her to jealousy and to anger. Then secondly, here in verses 20 and 21, Paul concludes by quoting the word of God through Isaiah, who boldly declared that God had revealed himself. God had reached out to those who had not sought him. God had reached out and shown an interest in those who had not shown an interest in salvation at all, which is what God does through the gospel, by the way. He reaches out to us even though we have not sought him. He reaches out to us even though we have not shown an interest in the gospel. And he draws us lovingly to himself. But as far as Israel was concerned, God expressed his long suffering and God expressed his displeasure as well. For due to his promises to Israel, God did not forsake her. And yet he had to chastise her for her disobedience. Chastise her for her contrariness, which describes God's posture towards Israel even today. The situation has not changed. 
So what are we as God's people to conclude from Romans 10 verses 14 through 21 this morning? We are to conclude that God's provision of the gospel is a blessing beyond description. It is a blessing beyond description and that our duty is to be diligent in knowing it and preaching it and living lives that conform to it. For it is only when we are loyal to the gospel... It is only when we are proclaiming actively and presently the gospel that we can be a lasting blessing to the people that we encounter and the people that we desire to minister to. However, if we are hostile towards the gospel today, and maybe you're here and you are hostile towards the gospel, you're determined not to receive it, you're determined not to bow the need you're unwilling to embrace it. Well, let us, if we're in that position, see the folly of our way, the foolishness of our way, and seek to be transformed by the power of the gospel instead. For there is a way that seems to be right unto men, but the end thereof is death and judgment. Maybe you're on that wrong path that seems so right on the surface, but is so profoundly wrong and foolish and ends in death and judgment. And if you are on that path, may God give you the grace to see where you're going and to turn from it in genuine faith and repentance. But the way of the gospel the way of the gospel is the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom, it is the power of God to save you. And may God give us the grace this morning to believe in the gospel. May God give us the grace and the courage to preach the gospel. In fact, maybe there are men within this congregation who can preach the gospel who have a calling from God upon their life, although they may not have adequately and honestly explored it. We should pray that they be awakened to their gifts. And we should pray that they have a desire to use those gifts for the proclamation of the gospel in the future. May God give us grace as a church to respond to these needs, to understand the importance of what Paul was saying to be faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, for its power, for its honesty, for its force in our lives. And we would pray now that as we contemplate prayerfully what we have heard, that the word of God would powerfully move us, convict us, draw us out of ourselves and out of our own selfish paths and set our feet upon the right path, the right way, the gospel way to be of service to you. Oh, may you raise up a generation of gospel preachers in our own day who are committed to proclaiming the gospel with power, who have no fear of men, who are not ashamed of the gospel because they know it is the power of God unto salvation. May we 
have that same courage today. May you use us for a gospel purpose here in the city of Bonham, that Jesus Christ might be glorified, that the gospel might go forth with great power, that many men and women and boys and girls would be conquered by the power of God. Oh, grant these things, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.